Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, Listen Local, Think Global. This is season four of Watershed Writers, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. I'm a professor and a poet, a researcher and reviewer, a writer of creative nonfiction, and a bit of a literary troublemaker. I'm also a prairie person living in KW, and I am a big, big reader. I love talking about books, and I love to talk to writers, especially those who live and work in the surrounding area. Local looms large on Watershed Writers. And this is my reminder to you that the local can loom even from across the country. Today, I welcome Susan Braley to the podcast. Susan is a poet who now lives in BC, but she grew up in the Grand River region. Her first book of poems is titled Tilling the Darkness, and it was published in 2023 by Caitlin Press. In this book, Susan thinks deeply about gender and class identity in rural southwestern Ontario and how she has come to regard this as her legacy from those years. Susan Braley grew up in a family of 11 on a farm in southwestern Ontario. Her life in this rural setting profoundly shaped her as a daughter, sibling, feminist, partner, and writer. Her poetry has been included in Best Canadian Poetry 2023 and was nominated for the 2022 National Magazine Award in Poetry. She was the winner of the inaugural B.C. Cedric Award for Poetry, and her poems have appeared in the literary journals The Antigonish Review, Arc Poetry Magazine, Canadian Women's Studies, CV2, The Literary Review of Canada, New Quarterly, Prairie Fire, and Room. Here's my interview with Susan Braley author of Tilling the Darkness. Welcome, Susan Braley, to Watershed Writers. Hi, Dennis. Hi, it's great to have you here. And you're joining us all the way from Victoria, BC. Is that right? Yes, I am. But you are originally from southwestern Ontario. And your first book, Tilling the Darkness, is comprised of poems uh, about growing up uh, in this area in uh, southwestern Ontario and published by the good people at Caitlin Press in BC. Yes. How has it been going with this launch of your first book? Actually, it's really been a joy. It's been a lot of fun launching first here in Victoria and then touring about on the island, uh, Hornby Island and Fanny Bay, and then taking the book back to KW and doing a big launch there in April. And then there have been a few since then. It's been my first book tour and uh, it's been a lovely experience interacting with writers and readers. Now, you mentioned that you brought it to KW. I saw that you had a launch last April. And mm-hmm. uh, this is a book that has its roots in uh, the general region of southwestern Ontario. And right. can you speak a bit for our listeners uh, about the setting and how it influences the content? Certainly. The setting for Tilling the Darkness, especially the farm homes, uh, is inspired by a farm where I grew up. It's a farm of about 30 minutes from the KW area. And uh, I draw on other farms as well, where I 
worked or played or visited. So the farm in the book is a kind of amalgam of several farms in the region. Those settings influence how I look at the world. The fields, the barn, the farmhouse were all ways of my understanding my environment. For example, the cornfields and the summer corn poem reveal an early love of growing things and, of course, a sadness when they mature and pass away. So this natural cycle is a really important part of the book, as well as my own memories of the place. But there's also a, a kind of echoing of the natural cycle uh, echoed in the family cycle. So, for example, when fathers die, sons are expected to replicate or carry on the same rituals that I grew up with. And sometimes that can be a little tyrannical. So, for example, in the book, the father is made to give up his interest in machinery to take over the family farm. And in the case of my brothers, they were made to do tasks in the, in the barn, which were uncomfortable. The women were assigned to production and reproduction in the house. So that kind of tradition existed, and it was a kind of tradition that I resisted and pushed against as I was growing up. And uh, you went to university, got a PhD, and then uh, taught in higher education. Is that right? That's right. Where did you teach? I taught at Fanshawe College in London, and then after a while also at Western University. My focus was English literature and women's studies. Well, you know, speaking of women's studies, I, I I couldn't help but note that Tilling the Darkness is published by the good people at Caitlin Press, which is, you know, a, a feminist and queer positive um, press you know, in BC that really emphasizes that kind of diversity and that kind of uh, sort of political insistence on, on thinking through gender issues. I couldn't help but think that this was a perfect press for this. You know, when you think about poems that, that come out of a, um, a rural farming setting, an agricultural setting, there is, I won't say a shortage, but there's more men writing about that than women. I, myself, because, you know, my, my parents are from rural Manitoba, grew up in part around those, those kinds of contexts as well, although I had mostly a, a city living. I'm interested in the what you just mentioned about the division not only of labor but the division of obligations as well in terms of gender right mm -hmm. and in terms of uh inheritance and on all those other very problematic things that are true in all families but they have a very specific kind of structure in a rural family or any family that is farming for a living right farming to actually uh, make money in agriculture so can you talk a little bit about that about the underlying feminism of this to me it's really an engine of the book yeah i want to hear you talk a little bit about that well i think for women in farming the, the expectation is that you might have other interests but they're very peripheral so for example my mother who had been a teacher herself um, was a strong leader and wanted to play roles in the community and occasionally did uh, in the church or um, in dealing with uh, the disabled population. And so she did that, but always with, with great resistance from my father, who believed that her role was at home with her children, and there were lots of us, and that she should always be at the ready for whatever roles she needed to play in, in that setting. And then for the for the girls in the family, we were, of course, taught to do all the things that she did. 
uh, including fairly serious investment in childcare if you were one of the older girls. We, of course, could have our interests, and but the expectation was that you would ultimately marry and have children. And so when it came to my wanting to go to university, my father, who was patriarchal in many respects, said he didn't see any reason for me to go because I would soon not be working. I would be busy doing what all rural women do. And so my mother had to go to bat for me, as she would put it, and to make sure that that happened. So for me, it was a, a profound issue. Of course, I wanted to study, and that was not something that was seen as particularly necessary or relevant. You know, and that's a profound act of, if not feminism itself, proto-feminism. I observed that in, in my own mother, that she wasn't that ambitious for herself, but she was ambitious for me. Yes. And, you know, it, it's not like my father would have stopped me from going to university, but he also he sort of wasn't high on his list of things that he was paying attention to. And it was my mother who insisted that this be, if I wanted to do it, it was a thing I should do. They should get ready for the fact that I was going to do this. That said, I'm not sure I would have been able to go if I wasn't a scholarship student, right? Because that was appealing to my father as well. He didn't have to pay, right? <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, incomes were definitely an issue, and scholarships made the argument a little stronger. <laughs> yeah, sure. indeed. And really, it was a way to say, these other people think I'm worth investing in. These other people who haven't met me think mm -hmm. I'm worth investing in, investing into the tune of $5,000, right? Which was a lot of money, you know, at that time, yes. right? And mm -hmm. I think that impressed him for sure. Yes. On the heels of this, I want to ask you a little bit about what the pleasures and the challenges were of looking back over a number of decades and a number of settings, because you no longer live in the area, and finding that groove and maybe sort of a, a grubbly, uh, difficult kind of groove of writing home in this instance. I'll start by saying that one of the immediate pleasures that comes to mind with regard to writing the book is I love to, to write the Via Feminile series, which is a set of seven poems about two thirds of the way through the book, where I choose to write portraits of certain women and these women are either historical, maybe mythical, one of them is even millennial, and they are strong women, and the portraits are charged with a really fine energy. And I'm hoping that these portraits will light the way for women struggling, whether it's characters in the book or women readers themselves. So that was probably the first thing that jumped to mind when you asked that question. Another thing I think was a pleasure perhaps more in hindsight than anything, is that I was giving voice finally in this book to some of the things that I now see are valuable about that farm life. And for a good number of years, I was running fast from it so that I felt I could be fully myself. And so for example, even the idea of mothering, which is a, an issue in the book, I look back and I, I see how birthing can of course be an engaging and powerful way to in, 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 interact with your own body. And of course, there is this an admission that I make in the poem called Procreation, where I have admiring things to say about my mother rather than worrying about her being so oppressed by all the mothering that came to her. And even in the Egghead Girl, 
the poem about the bog woman, the speaker of that poem has a maternal reaction to the body of that girl. So I think that those are things I accessed while I was writing, things that I had sort of tucked away a little deeply. So it was nice to rediscover them. I'm glad you mentioned those other poems because there's a way in which this book can be read as a strictly memoir style of poetry. Mm-hmm. But the more we dig into uh, what our past has been, the more we can see that there are connections, global connections, right, to uh, contacts other than our own. So that I think is, is interesting that you identify as the pleasure and the challenge was to see, you know, is to look back at your childhood and, and some of the challenges there. This idea of writing certainly a, a memoir or a memoir style of book is a, a staple, certainly in memoir, it's also a staple in fiction, but we're talking about something different here. We're talking about poetry as a genre. And I'm interested to hear you talk about why you chose poetry as a genre and what the advantages are to approaching this material through verse rather than through like a prose memoir or even a kind of fictive structure where, you know, make it it both your own and, and something different at the same time. What about this idea of a poetry as a kind of memoir genre? And are there drawbacks to doing it that way? The first thing is that while I adore fiction, can't wait to read yet another fiction, um, I do find when I'm writing, poetry is my preferred genre. I really enjoy how distilled poetry is. I love the leaps that can be made between stanzas, between poems in a collection, the unexpectedness of that. So the horizontal, somewhat horizontal narrative line in a Bildungsroman is not that appealing to me. On top of that, I'm, I'm really kind of looking to find ways to connect this young woman in the story with a lot of other women across time and geography. For an example, the young woman who is held down in the play, or in the poem rather, I could say, is in many ways connected to the young woman in one of the Via Feminile poems. She is a millennial, and she too is being held down perhaps more by social media than anything else. I want to the reader to see the connection between those very different kinds of women. I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the I Could Say poem. I was drawn to that because I was thinking, well, I, I totally understood that the, the farm and the rural setting you were talking about was in southwestern Ontario. You are specific in the I Could Say poem that uh, it begins with a young woman working at Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Right. So that is like hyper local, as we like yeah. to say in KW, yeah. hyper local. Yeah. And a very, uh, you know, at, at, on the one hand, uh, you know, a young woman's early experience coming to the biggish city. And on the other hand, a very specific kind of city because it is um, Kitchener's Oktoberfest. But it, that's also a very harrowing poem as well, because it's, you know, it's a story of, of an attempted assault and certainly a trauma. And also, uh, there's a heroic woman in there as well. And I kept thinking of that young woman's imperiled circumstance and the young woman who is the bog body in the Ekved girl as kind of a parallel. Because, you know, I've seen bog bodies in the National Museum of Ireland. They have six to eight of them, I think. And there is something so strange about them because they're fascinating, but you also know that these are people who have been sacrificed Yes. Right. To to a pre-Christian God, like a kind of fertility God. 
uh, or fertility goddess, but anyway, a, a deity to to govern the the crops, right? When you see a young woman sacrifice like that, it's hard not to think of the way that we sacrifice women in, in the contemporary era, particularly young women. I read those two as parallels, and I'm not even sure I was meant to read them as parallels, but I definitely was. And they happened at the core of the text, right? After you know a lot of poems about how women are subjugated, particularly to the raising of children, Mm-hmm. and uh, the raising of, of multiple children, right? I think this is, it's important that we're talking about several children and not like a single or, or two children. Yes. And I thought it was definitely a different but similar take on how women are asked to perform a particular kind of bodily sacrifice. Yes, I think that's true. In the case of the millennial, she's not a, a mother figure, but she is protecting her right to use and, and display her body in whatever fashion that she wishes. And one of the mentors she uses in that poem is Winnie Mandela, who in her years in the prison was not allowed to cover herself. And so actually uses her blood as a way of conveying power, even though she is cap- captive. And uh, so the body, reproducting body, reproducing body, is a center in that poem. Um, perhaps even more relevant is the figure of the Venus of Willendorf, who is a fertility figure, and she too is uh, covered in red ochre. When she's found, those men who found her, I think in the early 1900s, they wanted to scrub the red ochre off of her. And so again, this uh, denial of the reproductive, even though her body is obviously a celebration of it. Um, So I think there's strong ties between a lot of those female figures in, in the book. Okay, I think we've been talking about the poems, and I think we should hear some poems. One of the things I prepped you for was to ask you to read from a poem that perhaps surprised you in the process of writing it or in the the process of finding a spot for it in the collection. So yeah, would you be willing to read from one of those poems that surprised you as you wrote it? Yes, I will. This poem is called Remembering Fields Where Fathers and Uncles Fought or Spring Planting. It has three parts and I'm just going to read the third part. The poem is about the repatriation of fallen Canadian soldiers who were buried in German battlefields. These soldiers were brought from those battlefields to Grosbeek Cemetery in the Netherlands. And I was taken by what a uh, difficult process this would be for persons who were engaged in moving them. And so in the first part of the poem, I write about the ceremony where the dedication of the cemetery took place. I won't read that one, but we'll just say that it is prose for the most part, because it's such an orderly ceremony. The white crosses, the children in their knee socks holding bouquets, the queen in her special chair, and the altar with the cross and the sword hanging down from it. Then the second part is a piece of poetry It's done the year before, and that's the year where the bodies are actually 
taken from one location and brought into another. It's a setting where you see the harrow's teeth uh, as the land is prepared, and then the heaps of soil, the green-gray coffins, pieces of the remains such as cutlery, putties, and perhaps a jawbone. And the third part uh, I'm going to read is actually inspired by the idea of a palimpsest. As we all know, the palimpsest is an original text which has been written over probably by a scribe who's trying to recycle his parchment. And so I'm interested in palimpsest for this poem because I wanted a third layer. So the deepest layer of the palimpsest is this one. In the fall, when the field is spent, let it fallow. Let the bled earth sleep like a womb after birth, like the sea at its lowest ebb. Let stubble hoard the snow, free of plowshare blade and half wound hoof. In the spring, let April nurse the ground, soft with rain, then wind from the south. Cast alfalfa seed over the land. Let his pea shoots quicken, its heart buds bloom. Let the green green. Just past its youth, strike it down and turn it underneath. Blood of the lamb. Let the season pass and the field will renew. Thanks for that, Susan. Something that I keep returning to in this collection is how you work to make the agricultural metaphors work with nature poetry and industry. And I would also add the one more layer here and also with a, with a kind of elegiac reparation as well, right? And I think we see that certainly in the poem about the bog body, the Ekved girl, and, uh, and in this poem about re repatriating soldiers' bodies. Tell me about the surprise of this for you. That was one of the most surprising poems for you. You're surprised that, I don't know, what, what was the surprise? What I learned when I decided one day to just slip into a conference of medieval scholars, they were talking about the palimpsest, and they commented that in a lot of medieval texts, when they get to the bottom layer of the palimpsest, it's a agricultural manual. And so it struck me, with this poem, if you had an agricultural manual at the base of it, what would it say? Well, it would say, generally, I would think, how do you prepare a field for seed? But in this case, how do we prepare this field for this kind of seed? And so it's an ironic way to use this idea of the lowest layer, the most ancient layer, being some instruction on how to take care of the land. So I found that kind of striking. And also because of the notion, notion of it being aged, I thought using kind of biblical cadence as I did in that poem would be effective. It reminds me a lot of Virgil's Georgics, right? Which are, mm -hmm. you know, these long epic poems about how to grow things, right? Yes. They're, they're agricultural <laughs> poems, right? And this too, this kind of um, this kind of address and this idea that underneath all of this elegiac discourse, there is this keeps coming back to, but it's the earth in which we are planting them. It's the earth in which we walk on, that we use to grow the food that we eat, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been put to so many uses. 
Can you name some of your poetic influences? So if this is your first book, you've been working on it for a while, I would imagine, as they happen over a number of years as you take workshops and write and draft and meet people. And in that particular journey, who have you been influenced by? My first mentor over the course of for several years was Patrick Lane, who was a very strong presence on the island as a mentor when I arrived. I did several intensives with him, and I was taken by his focus on craft and his focus on cadence and also earning the big statement, as he would put it. You're writing and you want to draw some kind of conclusion, and he would certainly let you know if you weren't really ready for that or you hadn't really earned it. One of my favorite big statements in his collection is from the poem, Bare Plum of Winter Rain. He writes at the opening already, the instrument of your poverty is an infinite departure. Lines like that kept me writing so intriguing and, and so much depth. I'm also very taken with Arlene Paré's writing, particularly because her poems are so saturated as one would see in paintings. Her book, Time Out of Time, I think this is a particularly good example of that. And then thirdly, I would mention Chantelle Gibson and her book, Withholding. I love her audacity and also that connection between image and word. I would like to do more work on that myself. So I was very drawn to that. Well, those are all poets I know very well. I know Arlene personally for a long, long time. And uh, I know her and her partner uh, from my years on the island. Patrick and Lorna, his partner Lorna Crozier, were very prominent when I lived there as well. And Lorna's, she and Di Brandt were sort of my rural working class prairie farm girl <laughs> writers <laughs> that, I, that I really started reading and thinking, oh, you can write out of this context, right? don't have to have, you know, like have a big urban background for this. And so, um, yeah, they were early influences on me. And of course, Chantal Gibson, the great poet, the great subversive and very political poet. And I teach how she read all the time to my students. And I love to watch Chantal Gibson blow people's minds. <laughs> Yeah, she's so audacious and so experimental. And it's interesting because I think people often think that if you are an avant-garde writer, you're writing beyond people's experience. And I think, no, she's so rooted in experience, mm -hmm. right? Very much rooted in the, the feminist experience, the female experience, and the Black experience as well, right? And um, I recommend her to everyone. Listeners, if you haven't read Chantal Gibson, it has to happen. Both yes. Susan and I recommend I wanted to ask you something else about this. So you've got these influences and you've uh, reading these people. Also, Patrick Lane, you know, a great working class writer as well, right? What were the, the kinds of conventions that you wanted to honor for the significant work they could do in writing the rural, also writing the rural in poetry? And what did you want to challenge because you thought people would misconceive it? Mm -hmm. in terms of writing that kind of background? What did you want to embrace and honor? And what did you want to shake up a little bit and say it's not what you think? Good question. There are many such tropes out there. I would like to begin by honoring farmers who care deeply for their animals. That's not true of every farmer I recognize, but for most in my experience, almost all that I've known. 
And uh, so the scene where the father, for example, in the poetry, places his hand on the flank of each cow as he urges them out of a burning building. This to me is very typical of, of the approach that farmers use. They're soft voiced and caring. And that's a real departure from the media image I often hear, which is that farmers are cruel to their animals and uh, make money on, on the backs of their, of their animals' safety. Another thing I would honor is that farms are indeed beautiful places, but I would want to say that they are also sites of production. So there's equipment, lots of it. There's potential injury, which happens in the book. There's exhaustion, there's bankruptcy. And uh, so in this sense, I, I want to resist the farm as bucolic or Arcadian, all of those sort of rustic cliches. It's not a paradise in any sense of the word that people might want to use. I also, in terms of honoring, I'd like to, to stress that farms can be spiritual places, primarily because of the natural element, of course. But in the poem, I write the hired man. There is a sense of the mystery that can occur within, say, the walls of a barn, which is a place of life and death. So I watched calves being born, sometimes in a very difficult way and also animals dying, struck down by milk fever or by lightning, for example, if they were walking in the fields. And in terms of the, the land itself, there could be very violent tornadoes destroying crops. And so the farm is a place uh, where you see things much larger than yourself. Uh, Susan Haldane, who writes about farm life, I think she's in Eastern Ontario, her book's called Hard Bargain Road. She writes about picking stones, which is a grueling task, uh, picking up smoke stones so they don't disturb the crops and more particularly the equipment. And she says, you know, you can stub your toe on creation while you're mm -hmm. picking. So that's something I want to emphasize and I think comes out in the book as well. There's more to come from Susan in a minute. But first, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Watershed Writers. We appreciate that you appreciate our talks with writers living and working in the Grand River region. You can find us every Sunday morning at 10 on Midtown Radio KW, or you can hop on over to SoundCloud to listen whenever you want. We have amassed a library of interviews over our four seasons, and they're all there for your listening pleasure, including interviews with Clarence Kachiji, Tasneem Jamal, Luke Hathaway, Carol Duncan, E.K. Johnson, Pamela Mordecai, Heather Smith, Emily Urquhart, the editors of Textile Magazine, and so many more. You can listen live or listen later. For more information about our lineup of authors, please visit our website at www.watershedwriters.ca. Speaking of this being a first manuscript, can you talk a little bit about the process of putting the manuscript together? You know, whenever we talk to writers about process on this show, it's because, you know, many of our listeners are writers uh, or fledgling writers or, or they have half a manuscript and they want to know how to get to the real deal, how to get to the whole decision-making process of putting a manuscript together, choosing what to include, uh, and more importantly, what to leave out, like how to actually form a manuscript and not just have it be you know, a collection of miscellany of everything I thought of in the last three years, right? How do you choose? How do you arrange? I think probably the thing that stayed 
with me the most vividly is when I started to work with editors after, as you say, writing lots of things in lots of different directions in workshops. The first thing I learned was you certainly can't have everything that you've written about. You need to drop off anything which doesn't have to do with the focus you've chosen. So that was the first hard lesson in some ways because you're counting, you know, do I have enough poems for a manuscript? And, and the second is to look for poems that talk to each other. Another strong piece of advice that I got. So, for example, in my book, the poem Women Mend, it's a very short triolet. This poem includes women, includes the fields, and includes war, all in its very short lines. Poems that have that kind of resonance, I think, are ones you're, you're looking for to include, but also maybe to help to focus the, the manuscript when you're starting to put it together. And then in general, I wanted to find poems that covered the, those large thematic concerns, like the, the relationship between dark and light. So as Karen N's epigraph indicates, dark matter turned to understory light. So a plow turns soil over, it's exhausted soil and rubble, but in that same action brings up nourishment. And so I wanted to poems that looked at that potential, if not that actual overturning. So farm life, for example, with its loss, its prescription, its inequality, and its beauty, how is that related also to the world after the farm? So wanting those connections. So for example, the imminence of fracture is a poem about mortality. How can you connect that with what happens in the farm? Or in the case of the Venus of Billendorf, she is found in a field and she is an ancient fertility figure. How is that related to the women on farms who are struggling with production and reproduction and all of the things that curtail them as well as perhaps give them joy? And when was it that you wrote the uh, Via Feminile sequence? I did that actually in more recent years, um, not, not in the early parts of my writing. So the uh, so for you it was more important to get the biographical or the biographical shape, mm -hmm. not that everything in there is necessarily biographical, but the biographical shape of growing up rural was first, and then you, you reached out to more global and more political kinds of perspectives. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Okay. I think we can't go any further without talking about class, mm -hmm. and I know in Canada class as an oh-so-forbidden Canadian subject because we want to pretend that our society is classless, but it's not. So class and how it intersects with what I've talked about before, the gendered labor in this book. So there's a whole lot of poems here, as I've noted before, in which the division of labor between what the boys do and what the girls do on a farm, to me, it seems like this is your personalized political point right? Mm -hmm. for, for some of the book. I certainly do a lot of writing myself about working class feminism and its very snarly definitions. I'd like to hear you think about what is often known as the feminist click, the incident that happened and a girl or a young woman goes, hey, <laughs> that's, that's not fair. <laughs> hey, I need to stand up for myself in these kinds of instances, because if I don't, they're still going to, they're just going to happen and happen and happen. So can you talk to me about a feminist click on or around the farm? I would say that we've already talked about the, the major click for me, which is deciding to go to school and finding really support from my mother um, to do that. 
And of course, the main reason for discovering that was not so much a click, but rather a gradual process of recognizing the great imbalance in farm life and in family life. So noticing that women were generally assigned highly repetitive tasks. Um, I think Marx called them simple use of value tasks, mm. uh, which were repeated endlessly and, and offered no financial reward. Of course, we were children at the time, but the pattern was clear to me. And, and their roles, of course, were to serve males, to serve food, to do laundry, take care of children, run errands for men, fill in outside, but only when there's really a strong need and there wasn't a man available, take care of the house and basically be secondary to all of the operations occurring outside uh, because they were the significant and relevant activities. And for women like my mother, don't work off the farm because there is a need for you to be home. And besides, what would the neighbors think? So no income for women. And sometimes that income would have been very helpful. So the feminist awakening for me and my sisters around me were leave the farm and don't marry a local man, go to school, don't have many children or have none at all and have your own income. And so this was a, a very strong message, but it took a long time to make that thing happen where you didn't feel you were in a vulnerable position where you would get trapped into the repetitive cycle, that tyranny of tradition. Yes, yes. It, an, an era in which women can be uh, grateful for affordable, safe birth control <laughs> in this particular era, right? Yes, absolutely. That made an enormous difference. Because I was raised a Catholic, it was not something I could talk about with my mother. It certainly happened, and, and she knew that it would happen with her daughters, that they would have that control. But she did not. I, I want to bring up the poem about the pigs. Well, I'm glad you are going to, because I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> because juxtaposed to all these poems in which the boys get freedoms and the girls do not, this is juxtaposed to that because part of the boys' freedoms is doing some very difficult kinds of work. So while the girls' work is repetitive, low-use value, frustrating in many ways, not feminist, not self-affirming, the boys' work might be self-affirming, but it's also dangerous and sometimes deeply unpalatable. Yeah. So talk to me about writing the poem about the pigs and how you parsed that difference, because I think it's important to think, say that this is not a, an either or issue. It's shot through with all kinds of complications. That was part of the work of my writing this poem and one other poem, which is called Bequest, a scene between the woman in the poems and her brother. And so I'll start with the pig poem. I recognized early on in my youth, early adulthood, that this connection with our brothers and sisters was very problematized, primarily because we girls felt resentful for all the reasons I've mentioned. And the brothers seemed to have all the privileges, and they'd had some. They ate more meat at the table than we did. They had cars. They had no curfews. But sometimes those are generic issues in any family. But what I didn't recognize while I lived at the farm and even for years after, just how unhappy my brothers may have been outside. And uh, it's, it was a blind spot that I'm 
not particularly proud of, but did happen. And so in this book, I wanted to address it. And so it, the pig poem was a way of my looking hard at what my brothers might be doing while I was doing the tedious work in the house. What were they doing? And so I, I called one of my brothers when I was writing the poem, and I said, this is what I'm imagining you doing. He was still a boy at the time. And I said, is that what you did? And he said, yes. Because I had a feeling my father would not have asked him to wield a knife, but he would ask, have asked him to hold a pig down. And he said that that happened. So I wanted to write about the difficulties my brothers had, as we girls did in the home, but that these were, as you say, really kind of traumatizing things that they need to do and sometimes dangerous. And to recognize that they weren't so free, just as my own father was not free when he was expected to take the farm and didn't wish to. In writing this poem, which one of my editors said, well, I don't know if we need that. And so I, I wrote it better because I wanted to show that poem about castrating pigs because male pigs will not be purchased at market if they're not, because they have an odor. And so the male pigs have to be dealt with. But in the case of my brothers, it seemed to me like this is a kind of emasculating activity that they are performing because they are obviously taking that away from pigs. But more importantly, they have been made to do this. And it's not something I, I think any of them would have chosen or that my father would have if he'd had his choice. I wanted to show empathy to my brothers and to all farm men that this is something that is a difficulty and it's a burden that they carry. Can you read the poem? Held down, outside the pig barn, I find a knife in the chipped enamel dish once used in the kitchen. I don't go into that barn often. The pigs' high-pitched squeals, busy bodies, Blunt-nosed, coarse-haired, pressed against my brother's legs at feeding. The loose waist rife with ammonia. That day, my father at the sink scrubs his hands hard. My uncle slumps on the wood box near the stove, face white as salt. In the pig barn, the pigs are voiceless, milling in ragged circles, scrotum sliced, Bleeding, slack where testicles would be. No one buys whole male pork. We were there, my brother tells me later. We had to hold the pigs down. We girls in the house ironing, canning pears, studying. Thank you. One of the things that struck me when I read that is not only the presence of of the young boys or the, the young men, your brothers who aren't very old at the time, but the grown man, the uncle, whose face is as white as salt after it, that he finds it. It's not just that the, the boys find it unpalatable. A grown man is taken aback and, and has all the blood drained from his face at the, the work of it. Um, yeah, so that really struck with me. And that's that's why I was thinking about you know how we, you know, when we parse these this idea of gendered labor, we have to take in all these kinds of variables as well. Uh, Susan, if you had to articulate what you discovered while writing this book, what would you say? I would say that it had a lot to do with uh, my coming to own my own background, that in many ways, 
while growing up, farm children feel in some ways that they are marginalized, sidelined. I particularly felt this when I went to, from a small school to a large school in a town near where I lived. And in the poem called Chosen, this young girl who's in grade eight is described as being alone on the schoolyard plot and also looking at another girl who's also marginalized. And she remembers the scene of arriving at the school where some children say, oh, here come the hicks. In other words, kids from the land. And so there's a sensitivity, I think, in many farm children that they're going to be labeled in some way. And so that's the first reason that you think as a child, well, I shouldn't mention my farm life. And then growing up in a downtown city school um, and then off to university, it was not something that I would pull out and talk about. You know, what I had done in the summer was to work in the fields, that kind of illusion. And so this particular exercise of writing the poem, as I concentrated on it, let things surface and, and really examine what was important to me, I could see that I loved my background. And there were so many strengths, uh, so many memories that um, made me think of it as a, as a rich, complicated, but rich place. And so I reclaimed that, I felt, in, in writing these poems. Years ago, I, I wrote a book called Out of Line, Daring to Be uh, an Artist Outside the Big City. And I interviewed the Saskatchewan poet, uh, former poet laureate, uh, Brenda Schmidt, mm-hmm. for that. And, and we, we were talking about class, and she said that one of the things that made her feel her class as someone who grew up rural very acutely was being with other writers and other writers would be talking about, oh, well, you know, I went to Paris this summer and then I went went to Germany for a few weeks after that. And she was like, I kind of stay at home and tend to my garden and tend to the acreage and grow things. You know, she had never been to Europe, you know, until she was an adult and hear all these people talking about, you know, the trips they took with their parents when they were 15 and then, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the several times they had been to Paris, et cetera right? And that really stuck with me. And I I asked uh, Brenda's permission to include it in the book because, yeah, because that's, that was very much a a kind of thing for me. It was a, it was a big deal for me when I was growing up to get to go to another Canadian city, let alone, you know, get in an airplane and fly over an ocean. And I think we see that in academia too. You know, this is a, a kind of sudden question for you, but did you find that some of that followed you to academia as well, that you didn't want to reveal a, a rural background? That's true. I didn't choose anything rural to to write about or do seminars on. You know, I I stayed away from that angle and was not inclined to mention that I come from a farm. And I don't think there were any overt comments made by anyone which would make me think I should protect myself. But there had been a long enough tradition of it where you would say, well, it's better if I don't reveal that part of myself, which is another kind of way of looking at your question, and that is that this book was good at helping me to find a voice that I thought I had put away. And this is made clear, especially in the in the poem called A Woman Voices the Dark, one of the Via Feminile poems, and in a more humorous way from uh, in the book, or rather the poem called A Woman Uproots a Thistle. Do you want to read it? They're both short. A Woman Uproots a Thistle, The day after he left, she ran her tongue along her teeth, expected a gap 
She dreamed she flung a grapple to the far side of a gorge. It clawed the air, dropped over a mile into the rift. A week after he left, she stopped wearing his mustard cardigan, the one he couldn't stretch over his waist. She tore out the milk thistle he'd grown for his prostate, shot each prickled stalk at the compost heap, didn't miss. A month after he left, she built a gravel bioswale across the yard. After seven rains, the lawn left free of toxins. Great, thank you. I love that. <laughs> Throwing it at the compost heap and not missing. <laughs> Often when I um, interview uh, people who have been writing in the region for a number of decades, they talk about the changes they've seen in the region. And I know that you've moved away, but you uh, lived in London, Ontario for quite some time. So part of me was thinking about this book, the first half of this book, as a kind of portrait of not only of a place, but also of a certain era. Yes. Um, and what kind of changes did you see or were you really aware of in this region as you grew away from farm life and started doing scholarly work and could look back and see the changes? What, uh, what were the, the major ones that struck you? I would say the main thing is that farmers do find now that it is hard to hand their farmers down to their sons or daughters because of the expense Farms are fewer and larger. If you want to raise a family, you really need more than 100 acres to do that, to benefit from the yield of those fields. And so that's another change that a young family needs to look for a large farm and, and will they be able to afford to do that? The farms are more automated. And so in one sense, you could say it's easier for a farmer. He doesn't need to have as many sons and daughters to help him with that work because the, the labor is radically changed. It's much reduced. However, again, the expense is an issue. So there are numerous issues along those lines. Another one I think is ecological changes, um, that farmers need to be much more sensitive to the land and that adds another layer of stress in the sense of acquiring the knowledge and, and the uh, methodology to do that. Although I think most of them are, are sensitive to it. When someone's just published a book, this sometimes seems like a mean question, but also it takes a long time for a book to get published. And so I know that people always begin work on something else once a book has uh, gone into production. And so your book has been out for nearly a year now. And um, yeah, I want to ask what you're working on right now. Well, um, one of the things that I enjoy thinking about is the materiality of books. Uh, and how does that materiality, whether it's their paper, their typography, um, how does that contribute to the making of meaning? And so that's probably one of the reasons I was so intrigued with the palimpsest, is how does that very form change the way we look at a poem where that form is used? And so I was researching, and I came across the story of a bookmaker named James Evans, who was a Methodist missionary around 1840s, and he was working in northern Manitoba uh, among a Cree people. And while he was there, he created a booklet, uh, which he called a syllabary, and it, it contains syllabics. And syllabics are like letters of the alphabet, except that they are syllables. So two or three sounds are represented in one symbol. And so the Cree had their language, of course, and so he wanted to write 
their language down in characters that the Cree could then use to, to um, understand English content. So translating, for example, hymns and prayers into uh, the syllables that the Crees would recognize. And so he did that painstakingly, as you'll see if I read the poem for you. And I wanted to look at what happened when he did that. What was the result of his production and then later his reproduction of his syllabary? And so this is the work I'm doing now, and I'm hoping to do more such work that begins with the materiality of, of a book and see where it goes. Can you read the poem? This poem is called, He Thinks It's Their First Book. When he carves, his hands surprise him. Their greed for the oak, core of bark, orbit of heartwood, core of pith. His palms are calloused, fingers thick on the eggshell smoothness of the blessed pages on the oxblood leather of his Bible, blood of the lamb. He spilled his own, nicked his thumb on the wood as he freed its tongue. He believes he will free their tongues, his flock, with his book. The Cree, whose name means the exact people, will read. Notwithstanding the intransigence of the company who forbids the printing press at his mission, who thinks it best that Indian minds be frozen like prairie lakes in the vice of winter. And notwithstanding the snub of Bible societies who deem his heathen alphabet substandard. Though Burr Ark is hard as granite, the letters rise bit by bit beneath his penknife as native sounds formed in his mouth months before at first imperfect, half-born. These letters are more than letters. Their simple shapes sing this place. Gooseneck, owl's beak, moose track, warbler's wing, round of heel, curl of canoe. On the next day, he creates paper, the lining of birch trees immaculate, like the soul of an infant, gathered flattened and dried in a press once used for hides. He showed them too how to build proper homes, abandon those lodges of sticks and skins thrown together at random angles. His ink, a concoction of fish oil and soot. He blackens the faces of the signs, the cells of the wood drink his elixir in. At last he inscribes the characters line by line, a syllabic system a bright Cree would learn in a week. Their minds break free like rivers in a sudden thaw. They speak of him in whispers, the man who makes birch bark talk. They recite the commandments in order, one to ten. They know our father will forgive them again and again. And the men follow him in his tin canoe through the roar of the Medicene rapids to deliver the truth. Their grandchildren will stand silent in the laundry room at number 17 residential school. Now they can sing the light in their eyes. The year of Jubilee is come. Return ye ransomed singers home. 
Thanks for that. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the title. He thinks it's their first book. Clearly, we have a, a kind of, oh, I don't know, perhaps well-intentioned white saviorism, right? But mm, um, exactly. white saviorism none, nonetheless. Yeah, tell me about that. He thinks it's their first book part. I actually didn't use this title initially. I, I don't remember now just what I called it. But what happened was people actually thought this book or this poem was a straightforward poem. It, it had no irony. So I was celebrating this man for what he did, and, and isn't it wonderful? And so I needed to change the title, and I needed to add the line about the laundry room. Yeah, the laundry room uh, made a difference uh, for me when I was listening, for sure. Yeah, so I appreciate that. That's a big project, and one, of course, um, uh, I think complicated, for sure. I know uh, plenty of Cree uh, speakers are, are, you know, interested in the use of syllabics and as uh, as another uh, another form of writing. And of course, it has a, a complex and not completely decolonial history, right? Okay. Well, I really want to thank you for joining us today, Susan, and I wish you, you um, a, a good sales for Tilling the Darkness, published by Caitlin Press, and of course, uh, good writing with your next project. Tilling the Darkness is uh, published by Caitlin Press and available from that press and from wherever good books are sold. Remember to support your local independent bookstore as well as your local literary writers in the Grand River watershed. And as usual on this podcast, we recommend some of our local favorites. Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, Rookery Books in Cambridge, the Brantford Bookworm, and Good Minds Books at Six Nations of the Grand River. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Watershed Writers comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud or to our website at watershedwriters.ca. Coming up on the podcast, we talk with Erin Bow about her two-book year, launching her novel Simon Sort of Says, and her poetry book A Knife So Sharp Its Edge Cannot Be Seen. Erin was our very first guest on the podcast way back in 2021, and we are delighted to welcome back for a conversation about these books. And Erin has also just won a Newbery uh, Medal Honor Award for Simon Sort of Says, so congratulations to Erin. Also coming up, I'll be talking with poet and performer Nazar Hussain about his new book, Love Language. Nazar is the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence at Wilfrid Laurier University for winter 2024. He's originally from Southern Ontario, and we're welcoming him back to the region and to the podcast. We are always looking out for writers in the region, and if you know someone you'd like to hear us interview, just drop us a line and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. It is now deep into January, and ye gods, those gray skies are doing nothing for those of us with mood management. So this is my reminder to all who are listening that the thaw will come, just not tomorrow. In the meantime, be kind to whomever you can, rest whenever you can, and know too that Canada's new mental health crisis helpline is now up and running. It's free. Anyone can call, and there will be help at the other end of the line. The number for the Nationwide Mental Health Crisis Helpline in Canada is 988. It is okay to ask for help. You deserve it. That number again, 988. 
Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Riders. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am Tannis McDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global.